I want to think with you tonight uh, during our minutes together on the subject, understanding arguments for God's existence. Uh, What can we do and not do or expect and not expect from such a gathering? Well, just so you know where I'm coming from, I don't think you can argue anybody into the kingdom. You can't give somebody a sound group of arguments that's going to lead to their regeneration. Uh, But I do think, especially for some smokescreen issues that uh, an opponent to the gospel might raise, and even for the strengthening of the faith of the believer, there are good areas to think about in the area of study called apologetics, where we can use our reason and certainly guided and informed by the light of Scripture, which is perfect and sufficient. Uh, We rejoice in a number of ways to conceive of God's existence tonight. And these are not original with me or anyone contemporary with me. These are old ways of thinking about why it is reasonable to proclaim a creator who has fashioned all things for his glory. These are not exhaustive. I want to highlight six arguments for understanding God's existence tonight. There are loads of supplementary ideas that theologians and philosophers have argued for over the years, and I think quite compellingly. Um, So it's difficult to know what to select. The first three is where we'll spend most of our time, and then I want to highlight, as time allows, desires, beauty, and love. But primarily, causation, design, and morality. Um, First of all, when you open the Bible... The Bible does not give you in Genesis 1 an argument for God's existence. Genesis 1 proclaims the God who is, and this is not an existence that's thought through and fought over or debated in the opening chapters of the Bible at all. We meet in the Old Testament the Creator. He is in the beginning, the one who made all things. And he himself is not one of those things made. We are confronted with the living God for whom all things exist. And we know, according to Paul's letter to the Romans, that due to our sinfulness, our reason has been affected by the fall, though not rendered inoperable. Our reason has led to a multitude of paths of darkness in idolatry and foolishness that Paul describes this way. Familiar verses to us in Romans 1.19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, they are without excuse. They would even include the kinds of groups the psalmist would address in Psalm 14. And in verse 1, it is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. According to Paul, there are evident and clear things in the world that we are able to perceive. And I don't think he's saying we have to be a believer to perceive these realities. There have been many people who've been willing to grant to some degree or another the things I want to highlight tonight. And it's not because each of these thinkers has been a Christian. I think it's because Romans 1, 19 and 20 is true, actually. Because the eternal power and divine nature of things can be perceived in the things made, the things in the creation of the world. There is an inexcusability that's at the heart of this then. 
The fool must say to himself, there is no God, because that goes against even the instinct of the fool in a fallen world who sees the shame of wickedness and the guilt that he or she would carry, a sense of accountability and transcendence and meaning in the world around him. The fool must convince himself there is no God. There is abundant evidence to the contrary. Now, our reason is good. Uh, Our reason is not perfect. And while affected by the fall, it is still useful to see the things that Scripture itself in its perfect light tells us we ought to know. Um, In the arguments for the existence of God that have been put forward over the centuries, one of the most common is this argument for uh, God's existence and the uh, language causation attached to it. You may have heard of this argument called sometimes the cosmological argument. That's the most technical phrase for it, the cosmological argument. And what it's trying to do is to say, well, here we are tonight. We are something. We're not nothing. Here we are in a world that is not nothing. It is something. Everything around us, we can see it. We can touch it. There is, through our senses, an intelligibility of this world. We are indeed here. And it gets us to the question, why is is there something rather than nothing? And there are really two options. You either have to deal with the question of it being a creator explanation, or you have to deal with the alternative view, there is not a creator, things exist for some other reason. One of the most uh, famous writers and scientists of the 1900s was a man named Carl Sagan, and he was not a Christian. He said the cosmos is all that there is or ever was or ever will be. And in their book, The Grand Design, uh, writers Stephen Hawking and Leonard Mlodnow, they popularized the idea that the universe could have created itself from nothing. You heard me correctly, that the universe could have created itself from nothing. And from their book, they say, spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists and why we exist. So if we go back to that earlier point, why is there something rather than nothing? Well, there have been some people who have written along those very lines. It's because these things that exist Uh, are the result of a spontaneous creation, the universe has created itself. Now, if there is within you a sense of, that doesn't seem quite right, um, that is there for a reason. That instinct, in fact, bothered scientists as well. More on that in a moment. We know instinctively from the way we observe the world that whatever begins to exist has a cause. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. And you can create a logical syllogism that follows the the following logic. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe begins to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. We We would keep language that theologians in church history have used calling God the cause for creation, but not someone caused himself. He is the uncaused cause. How do you like that language? Play on words there, right? He is what others have called the unmoved mover. We're around a creation. And we see existence all around us. And we see things in motion. Now, you might not even 
think of yourself as hurtling through outer space. But you and I right now are hurtling through outer space. Um, I, I, um, I, I think that our position from our vantage point makes us feel like things seem very stable. But uh, if we zoomed out large enough, you would realize there's a lot of motion and a lot of moving going on. But the one who has put things into motion or the one who has caused other things to exist, he himself would be an unmoved mover and an uncaused cause. No one has put him into motion and no one has brought about his existence. Tim Keller writes in his book, Making Sense of God, nothing cannot produce something. Think about that for a moment. Nothing cannot produce something. Everything must come from something that already has being. This means that there must be some unique being that exists without a cause that didn't spring out of nothing. And that is its own cause or source of everything else. The being itself is God. So if there's a creator and all of a sudden existence is a result and has been caused by him, he is not dependent on creation at all. We would not call his existence contingent. You and I are derivative or contingent beings. Our existence is dependent on a higher and earlier cause, right? And I'm not meaning just your parents and your parents' parents and your parents' parents' parents. I mean rewind it all the way back. Go all the way back and you realize the series of causes and effects throughout the world are traced back to an uncaused cause. An unmoved mover. The one who is existence and being in himself who is not contingent on anyone. Now, maybe you have asked the question before that many have asked. If everything was created by God, then who created God? This is a very common question. If everything needs a cause, then what is God's cause? Because here I am using this phrasing that he's the uncaused cause. Am I just being cutesy with language? What are we doing? This is an argument uh, that an atheist named Bertrand Russell brought up. Russell said, if everything must have a cause, then God must have a cause. The problem that we need to notice here is that an error in reasoning has been committed. We've committed what's called a category error. We have assumed that God is defined by the kinds of things we know of in time, contingent beings, derivative things. If everything must have a cause, Russell said, then God must have a cause, right? But the question doesn't apply to God. Uh, For example, if you met a bachelor and asked him the question, who are you married to? He would say, well, don't you realize that given the definition of this status, that question doesn't apply to me? The same kind of error would be committed if we insisted, who caused God? Who created God? We're trying to put forward that the Bible's definition of God is one beyond time. You see, cause and beginnings, that's the thing you ask about what exists in time. But what if in the beginning, God creates the dimensions we know as well as time? Those things wouldn't apply to him, would they? The time question about when did he begin and who started him or who created him, it wouldn't apply to the one who by definition brings beginnings into existence. So while it seems a clever question, 
Oh, if everything needs a cause, who created God? It's a logical category error of reasoning. We need to know this because it can often be a response that uh, uh, an opponent to the gospel might throw back thinking that they've got a gotcha moment. It's not one at all. We should think about that syllogism I gave you earlier again. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Which means automatically that premise is not applied to God. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe begins to exist and therefore the universe has a cause. So let's think about it this way. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. God did not begin to exist. There was never a point when, when God was not. He is the eternal one and the uncreated one, the uncaused caused and the unmoved mover. The universe had a beginning. Now, this has been the consensus, this idea of the universe having a beginning, among scientists since the 1950s and 60s. Now, this has been the result of various discoveries, including uh, some by Edward Hubble and some others. And some scientists felt the implications to this discovery that they did not care for, even though believers had been shouting for all these centuries that indeed God created the universe and it has a beginning. One agnostic to represent the disturbed feeling many scientists got. His name is Robert Jastrow, and here's what he says. Scientists have found the idea of the universe having a beginning quite disturbing. If the universe has a beginning, it opens the door. This is a paraphrase. It opens the door to a cause outside itself. And here's a quote from him. He says, The scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story for him ends like a bad dream here. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. And he he realizes, in other words, this whole notion of the universe having a beginning, this has been something the Bible has taught all along. Now, Jastro, while not a believer, had a profound insight there. Indeed, this is what theologians have been trumpeting all along. The um, cosmological argument or an argument from causation depends on the very observable and scientific idea that whatever begins to exist has a cause. And it's no good explanation to say at the foundation of Darwinian or evolutionary theory that, hey, our starting step here is that everything came into existence by itself or spontaneously generated or the universe caused itself to exist. That is, that is a nonsense starter. And yet it is the foundational element that evolutionary and naturalistic theory depends on. I think it's a wrong move and it's opening step. And I know you agree. Let's think about this second argument. An argument from design. An argument from design is sometimes given the label the teleological argument. Teleological, T-E-L-E-O, and then the word logical. Teleological means to think about the end or purpose for it. That this universe is designed for particular reasons. It doesn't seem to be arbitrary. There, There is a striking number of scientists and astronomers who, while not yet professing the Christian faith are overwhelmed by the fine-tuned nature of the universe, and it has them asking all sorts of important questions. And that's exactly the kind of thing we would want. This can sometimes be called the fine-tuned argument, or looking at how the universe seems to be dialed in such a way that it's not accidental that we live. And indeed, the universe has been fine-tuned for life. Um, The way I would think about it is, notice I'm speaking from a microphone here. We've got the sound system 
system on and a number of dials have to be in the right spot. You've got to have things off mute. The thing has to be turned on. The dial has to be gone uh, up on the left side and on the right side. There's a number of dials that make my voice coming through here hearable. And if you could just take that small analogy and multiply it scores and scores of times. The factors in the universe are like precisely set dials in order for life to exist. Now, we're not surprised by this. Just read Genesis 1. The Lord climaxes his acts of creation in Genesis 1, 26 to 31 with making male and female in his image. But prior to that, he's made a world habitable for them. In other words, when he makes the heavens and the earth and he forms the earth very carefully, dividing land from sea and, and filling the land with, uh, with life as what, not just animals, but also fruits and food and plants, he is creating a habitable world. If it seems to the reason of people looking into the heavens and into nature, My goodness, things seem fine-tuned for life. The Bible says to us, indeed, there's a whole band of theologians that have been waiting here with this point all along as well, to borrow Robert Jastrow's phrase. The chances that all the dials have been correctly set, you know, people try to run numbers on this. What are the chances? 10 to the negative 100th power, which is to say point, then 100 zeros, and then a one. In other words, we're, we're dealing with what is essentially an impossibility. Um, you, you can't even speak of, oh, yeah, it was, it was quite likely that all things considered, things would have wound up being the way they are right now. We being here, the world being as it is, the unlikelihood, the impossibility is overwhelming. William Paley was an English clergyman who used a famous illustration from a watch. And he said, suppose you're on the beach. And I know you'd want to be there right now, okay? You're thinking about a beach in Florida and you're there in the Destin Sands. And and he says, if you come upon a watch, what would you assume led to the production of this watch? Now, you might not know much about the watchmaker at that point, but your assumption would not be that the sand and waves did that. Your assumption would be that something happened. A physical chemist named Charles Thaxton said that, let's say you go to an island and you find John loves Mary etched into a tree trunk. You would think to yourself, somebody did that. That's why that's there. That's why it looks that way. Those aren't even randomly assembled letters. They mean something. What are these brief analogies trying to convey? Well, they're trying to convey that if we are attentive to the world, we will notice a kind of fine-tunedness about it where it's reasonable for us to say, this has been done by someone. The design, the appearance of the design, would imply reasonably a designer. And that's the argument from design. The teleological argument says the presence of design leads us to affirm a designer. A religious mathematician, well, a group of them really in the 16th and 17th centuries included people like Isaac Newton, Johann Kepler, Galileo, Copernicus. They all believed that the universe was ordered in the way that it was because God is a rational being and that his creation and handiwork and design is reflected for people to perceive. Similar to what Paul would say in Romans 1, 19 to 20. And there are very technical forces and constants and physical laws that you can read up on that are truly mind-blowing. The various 
electromagnetic radiation realities and the gravitational pulls and forces. I was reading up on some of this, which I hadn't looked at in detail for a long time, and I was overwhelmed then just as I was uh, now. And it's, it's so staggering, the amount of things. I want to just give you a little bit of uh, insight into what I mean. If the frequency of electromagnetic, electromagnetic radiation from the sun was altered, life could not exist. Here's what we mean. The photons of radiation, if they were too energetic, chemical bonds would be destroyed and molecules would be unstable and life would be impossible. If the protons are too weak, chemical reactions would be too sluggish and would not be able to form life. The radiation produced by the sun and how it helps life on the earth is produced by a careful balancing of forces that look fine-tuned by a watchmaker. In the case of the Earth, the gravitational pull of its moon stabilizes the Earth on the angle of its axis at nearly a constant 23.5 degrees. This allows seasonal changes. And the only climate in the solar system mild enough to sustain complex living organisms. For instance, if the earth were 5% closer to the sun, it would be subject to the 200 and uh, it would be subject to the same fate as Venus with temperatures rising to over 900 degrees Fahrenheit. No life there. If the earth were about 22% farther from the sun, it would experience runaway glaciations, it says, of the kind that has left Mars sterile. These are slight percentages of nearer or farther tilts on the axis. These kinds of things look like life has been, life exists because of a fine-tuned atmosphere. There's design in nature. The most critical element in nature for the development of life is carbon. And yet, carbon in nature is the result of very precise balancing of factors and forces. Um, So many facts and uh, statistics that are truly overwhelming. Uh, For instance, one one particular force called the strong nuclear force. If it were 2% weaker, protons and neutrons would not stick together, atoms could not form, and molecules could not exist, and that means neither you or me would exist either. Small deviations with the things that scientists have discerned, astronomers have measured. It looks like on planet Earth, life has been fine-tuned to exist. Fred Hoyle is a British astronomer who said in 1984, Such properties seem to run through the fabric of the natural world like a thread of happy coincidences, but there are so many odd coincidences that an explanation seems required to account for them. Genesis 1 teaches us that man is made in the image of God and God has created his world so that image bearers can dwell there. We are overwhelmed by the astronomical measurements, by the things that we see in the nature around us in God's world. But even more profoundly, in the 1900s, there have been tremendous insights into the human body. Into the human body. We know that the reality of DNA and all of your bodily systems and the location of your limbs, that your eyes are on the front of your head and not one on the bottom of your foot, are all strikingly symmetrical and fine-tuned. You and I produce about half a gallon of stomach acid every day, and it would completely eat through our entire stomach. 
except for the fact that every two weeks, our stomach produces a new lining of mucus to keep us eating, digesting, and alive. That is not the result of millions of years of evolution. That is amazing. And that's the only reason you and I can eat well and and continue alive. You could take that small example and multiply that by so many. It speaks of, and I know that's kind of a gross analogy too, but (laughs) I'm staggered by it. I think it's amazing. Um, Take the cell. The human cell in the days of Charles Darwin was viewed as a kind of black box but viewed very much as an unknown territory and thought to be very simple. In his book, Origin of Species, here's what Charles Darwin said. If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which couldn't have been formed by numerous and successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. But Darwin had not investigated, nor had the light of understanding that came later about the human cell. The human cell is the very kind of thing with complexity that can't be reduced with parts removed for them to continue to function. Using Darwin's own words, we could say that his theory, therefore, would absolutely break down. The more insight into the human body, into nature, into the universe, it is overwhelming. A scientist named Stephen Meyer says, During the 1870s and 1880s, scientists assumed devising an explanation for the origin of life would be easy. They assumed life was essentially a simple substance called protoplasm that could be easily constructed by combining and recombining simple chemicals. And now all of those simple notions have been put to the side. When we meet God in the book of Exodus, Moses says, Who shall I tell the Israelites sent me? And he says, you tell them, I am that I am. I am the one who sent you. The one who is, who needs no cause himself. The one who is the ground and source of all being and life. This God is a God of righteousness and holiness. Let's think together and use our reason about morality. This is sometimes called the appeal to moral laws. Or the argument from morality. And this argument for the existence of God is to say, notice throughout the world and throughout human history, people have been quick to speak of moral duties and obligations. And they agree so much that murder is wrong. Rape is wrong. To harm a child for entertainment would be wrong. And and as one writer uh, said, someone who doesn't think those things are wrong, they don't need another argument for God's existence. They first need a psychologist in order to explore the deadened conscience and the inappropriate discernment about what is right and wrong. And of course, you can give further examples. A universal moral law, a kind of code agreed upon by humans throughout human history. Now, this is not to say, of course, that everybody's moral compass is tuned correctly or that all of our consciences function soundly all of the time. Especially for those who don't know Christ, uh, we can say uh, very strong and uh, distressing things about their own desires and idolatries. But this argument for morality is something worth considering in addition to the others. I don't think you should only focus on you know, one way of thinking about the existence of God with our reason. Instead, a cumulative case, looking at a multifaceted approach, can bring great comfort to the reason of those thinking as image bearers about the God we confront in the Word. Fyodor Dostoevsky, who wrote books like Crime and Punishment and the Brothers Karamazov, he said, without God, everything is permitted. 
Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Without God, everything is permitted. One can do anything, he says. Now, Dostoevsky is a believer. He is a fiction author, but he was also a strong Christian. And that's reflected in his stories. But Dostoevsky is correct that if you remove a lawgiver, who is to say ultimately what is right or what is wrong? You devolve into a kind of subjectivism and relativism that becomes disastrous. A philosopher named Elizabeth Anscombe said, people should stop using the word ought because there's no ultimate way to justify it. Well, friends, in a world without God, how would we justify it? In the end, it's just what you would really strongly feel to be the case. How would you say to Adolf Hitler or to Chairman Mao or to many horrendous perpetrators of evil and violence in the world that what they did was truly evil if you remove God. Who is to say it's evil? You? They certainly didn't think it was. They certainly believed in a kind of prevailing strength and might and, um, and agenda that for them resulted in what it was, and they believed it was good. Frederick Nietzsche says people should leave behind the illusion of moral judgment. Nietzsche says there are altogether no moral facts. Moral judgments, like religious ones, belong to a stage of ignorance. See, there are people who remove God from the equation and they understand what it means morally. I at least appreciate their honesty. What, what bothers me is people who remove the idea of existence for God as a standard for right and wrong and think you can still ground things like morality, objective truths, and human rights. In the end, it's impossible philosophically and theologically. You've removed the one against whom all right and wrong decisions are measured. The one who himself is righteous and altogether holy, 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 as the seraphim declared. Nietzsche says that we should leave behind moral judgments as an illusion. And Dostoevsky is right that without God, everything is permitted. Might makes right. That's the outcome of naturalistic thinking, isn't it? The strongest survive. The fittest survive. So if people are prevailed over and they're just the weak, then nature didn't select them, did it? Survival of the fittest. Instead, we learn in the Word of God that not only are our instincts correct in our contemporary day and throughout human history, there are real moral rights and wrongs. But it's not because you think so and I think so. It is because God has written a moral law upon our hearts Paul teaches this in Romans 1 and in Romans 2. We can discern what is right and wrong, especially as God's image bearers honoring God and looking to God because God himself is the standard. Tim Keller says in his book, Making Sense of God, that moral obligation makes more sense in a universe created by a personal God to whom we feel responsible than it would in an impersonal universe with no God. We think about human rights and other things in our legislations about rights and wrongs and goods for society. You should ask yourself, good according to whom? Right according to what? If in the end, naturalism and materialism is the preferred worldview and you remove a designer and creator, you've removed a lawgiver who is the only standard to appeal to. Otherwise, it's just what you feel strongly is the case. And why should we go by your feelings and not someone else's? And you might say, well, it's because it's what's better for neighbor. But why is doing what's better for neighbor preferable? You see, it continues to be asked. Like you, you end up in an endless string of questions like, why would we care? Why ought we care what's better for neighbor? 
There's another obligation that you're putting on someone without grounding it. With God and through his word, we discern that he is righteous and good and holy and wise. And God has put moral instincts and conscience on our hearts and minds. But God help us. We've gone astray in our sin. Argument number four, five and six that we handle briefly. The argument from desires. This argument from desire connected with these other ones, I think, is one to consider. Certainly not on its own, but it has some merit to it. In his book, Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't, Gavin Ortland says, the fact that we desire something to be true does not make it true. At the same time, desire is not irrelevant to truth either. Desire is itself a piece of data that must be taken into account and interpreted alongside other data. Now, what kinds of desires do we have in mind? Well, I don't mean here a desire for sin or wickedness. I mean desires for things like meaning and significance, for something more to this life, a sense of the inability of material things to satisfy the hearts of people who get to the top of their profession and earn the paycheck that they were hoping to and realize in the end it did not satisfy me. What do I have in my heart that I'm desiring that it can be met in in some corresponding way? All the different spiritual pursuits in the world, even the idolatrous instincts of pagans. C.S. Lewis wrote profoundly about this in his book, Mere Christianity. I want you to consider his argument here. Lewis says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, The only logical explanation is that I was made, I was made for another world. He he argues that there are corresponding fulfillments for things like the desire for food or the desire for pleasure, the desire for thirst. The, The corresponding fulfillments to those things exist. And so Lewis goes on to say, if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy the desire I have. That does not prove the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it. Lewis says they were only meant to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And if that is so, Lewis says, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for the earthly blessings. But on the other hand, never to mistake them for the something else of which they were just a copy, an echo. I must keep myself alive in desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. So Lewis was saying, notice in the desires of our hearts, there are corresponding fulfillments to things in life. And yet among image bearers, there is a strange sense over and over again of the inability for material things to satisfy. And Lewis says, That's a signal. That's a signal, isn't it? You are not made for your soul to be satisfied by food and drink and pleasures. You are made for God. So desires are an interesting argument to consider alongside these. What about the argument from beauty? Well, we can reflect on beauty in the world and it's everywhere. Our five senses see it all the time. There's beauty in sight, whether it's a painting that you're moved by or beautiful terrain that you're taking in. You sunsets that you see from your home. Psalm 19.1 says the heavens declare the glory of God. 
when people are moved by the sheer beauty of things that they see in creation or that are represented in photographs or in paintings, there is a reason for this. And that is because our senses were made to enjoy and be delighting in the maker, the one who himself is the source of beauty. So the beauty doesn't become the thing we worship. The beauty directs us. The beauty moves us. I think especially of beauty and sound. Think of music. Think of music. In Gavin Ortland's book, Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't, he says, think of the way you feel listening to the soundtrack during the climax of your favorite movie. Music feels important. It feels meaningful and grand as though it were conveying to us something too poignant for words, some haunting beauty from another world. Albert Einstein once listened to a prodigy play the violin, and afterward he said to her, Now I know there is a God in heaven. Steve Jobs, before he died, listened to Yo-Yo Ma play Bach on the Stradivarius, and Jobs teared up and said, You playing is the best argument I have ever heard for the existence of God. Peter Kreef said, here's his argument, I think you'll appreciate it. Peter Kreef said, there is the music of Johann Sebastian Bach, therefore there must be a God. What these people are trying to hit on is, there is a beauty and manner of invoking deep things in the soul that music plays. But in a naturalistic world, that's all just the delusion of chemicals you see. It's just molecules doing what molecules do. Doesn't ultimately mean anything. No significance there. You're just fooling yourself. But listen, friends, even when I say those latter words to mimic the naturalistic view, you and I know there's something wrong with that. Like we know because of how God has made us and wired us that the beauty of music testifies to something. There's a reason that J.R.R. Tolkien began the book The Silmarillion with the world's creation as a work of music. There's a reason in C.S. Lewis's fictional world of Narnia and in The Magician's Nephew, Aslan sings the world into being. These people are believers in Christ Jesus recognizing that something of God is seen and known even in the one who might be trying to turn from God at every possible opportunity. They can't escape ways in which God has testified of himself in the world. And one of the ways is in beauty, in art, in God's creation, in the playing and enjoyment of music. It is true. And then lastly, let's reflect on the nature of love. If we're just accidents in the world, and we just happen to exist then in the end, there is no real or lasting love objectively that you can point to. Even what you think you could discern in yourself are just feelings in your brain that are a result of various reactions and chemical combinations. Don't you see that even love in a naturalistic viewpoint crumbles? It crumbles. Atheist Bertrand Russell gave an honest assessment. And again, I appreciate someone who looks at the assumptions of their worldview and takes it to its conclusion. Here's what Russell says. He says that man's origin, growth, hopes, fears, and loves are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. I bet his wife didn't appreciate that on Valentine's Day. I don't know if he ever wrote that in a card or anything. 
My molecules think you're great, I guess. But we know instinctively that our love for others, our care for others, our care for people like us and unlike us, the beauty of music in the world and art. And you look at the other things too, the desires that we see inwardly within. I'm talking about, again, not desires for sin, but desires that aren't fulfilled by the material things in this world. Lewis says, hey, that's because you were made and not made for those things to satisfy you. You were made to know God. And then the moral laws that we see around us in our contemporary day and throughout history, the design that we see in the universe, in the nature around us most immediately, and in the human body, the overwhelming fine-tunedness of it all. And then what we know about how things come to be, that whatever has come to be was caused. And friends, these are a combination of arguments, causation, design, morality, desire, beauty, love. You take them together. You group them how you like. And you add to them many more different suggestions from other philosophers and theologians. These are all pointing us to what the theologians from Scripture have been saying all along. There is a God. And in the beginning, He created the heavens and the earth. He's divine. He's eternal. He's omnipotent. He's not made or com- a composition of anything. He is self-existent. And He is the source of all goodness and joy and peace and life and love. And therefore, He is worthy. The Bible would invite us to consider you and I were made to know Him and to enjoy Him forever. Let's pray.